0: Anyway, um, I'm Cindy. I'm a registered nurse from California. Um, Thank you all for coming. I have the privilege of sharing some stories um, of men that I encountered um, over the last 10 months when I was serving in New Delhi, India. Um, And we affectionately call it Sewa Stories, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. Um, But let's talk about our objectives first. Uh, First, hopefully by the end of this, you'll be able to describe the importance of integrating holistic health healing methods. That is a mouthful. Um, And then also, we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of um, a well-working multidisciplinary team and what that means um, to Christ-centered ministry. Um, The organization that I worked with, this is modeled in their vision statement, so we'll come back to it in a few minutes. But first of all, how many of you have been to India? Oh, that's so great. I love it. Um, So this is for you, but also for people maybe who haven't been to India and don't know so much about what goes on there. What do you think of when you think of India? Answers. What was that? Goats? Goats? (laughs) Traffic. Lots of of people. (laughs) Other things? Noise. What was that? Bollywood. Bollywood. Totally. Anything else? What? Tech support. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Rickshaws, great. Anything else? Cricket, yes. I still don't get it. I just don't understand. Anything else? Hindu temples. Some Houses made out of cow dung, totally. Taj Mahal. What was that? Cast system, absolutely. Hmm. Hurry, yeah, lots of busyness. Um. When I first went to India eight years ago, um, this is what I thought India was. Someone said Bollywood, that's totally the image I had in my brain. I was like, there's going to be dancing in the street and bright colors, and it's going to be so cool. Um, I was quickly showed otherwise. Um, I, ha- I haven't been in India for eight years total, but I've been several times on short term trips. Um, this last time in India, I saw a different India than I had ever seen before. Um, and I just have a short video to kind of show you about the India that I experienced daily and um, which many of you probably have experienced as well. Um, And then at the end, uh, the second part of the video kind of talks about the organization I worked for, and you can see it in pictures. So um, the video is made five years ago, Um, so there's been some change, but it's still pretty much the same. So give me one sec as I click over to that. Hopefully we can get the sound appropriate. Amen. warn you that the video is a little bit raw (laughs) Um, but that's that's India for you Um, one more sec just to click back over to this great okay so I hope you all enjoyed that video it's hard to see but that's that's the India I saw India is a culture of extremes. Those of you who have been there understand that, that we have things like Bollywood and tech support and these awesome malls. Like I walked into a mall once and I was like, am I back in California? Like where am I right now? I have no clue. Um, but w- there's extreme wealth in India, but then there's this absolute poverty and destitution that we see. Um, the organization I worked for was called Delhi House Society. Part of their, um, under their umbrella is something called the Sewa Ashram. I don't know about you, when I heard the the word ashram for the first time, I was thinking like Hindu, worship, you know, eat, pray, love kind of stuff. But ashram just translates to the word community. And sewa means serving. So um, this was a serving community dedicated to holistically rehabilitating destitute people of India in the name of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Um, You saw a little bit of that in the video. I forgot. I have a question for you, healthcare professionals. Um, you saw this white guy taking photos, having a guys, one of the um, men on the street stick out his tongue, look under his eye. What was he doing? Jaundice? Okay, potentially. What was that? Anemia. anemia, exactly. So those were our quick tests for anemia. Have them stick out their tongue, look under their eye. By the end, we were having bets to, oh, this is horrible, bets to see how low their hemoglobin was, because we'd get people in with hemoglobins of 5, 6. We wouldn't transfuse. Um, it's that was, oh, that's fine. Five or six, that's okay. Um, actually, five we would transfuse. Six or seven. I don't know. But in hospitals and where I'm from, we, uh, we transfuse at eight. So I was like, what? We're not transfusing? Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so that was just a quick test for us. Um, we talked about our goals earlier, so let's talk about the ashram and kind of how that sets us up for our goals. Um, their, their vision is to see lives transformed in five different ways, economically, physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. Sounds pretty holistic, if you ask me. And they strive to be a community that loves God, loves people, and is a blessing to those in need. Um, so you kind of saw in the video what happens when patients come, but I just wanted to give you some more context. I'm a big context person. It helps me understand. So we would go out in our ambulance, which was so fun to try. Oh, my goodness. I loved throwing that siren on. I was like, get out of the way, everyone. Um, But this is Rajpal. He used to be a patient with us as well, and he's now on staff. Um, I only got to go out and pick up patients once or twice because being a blonde female in India, going to some of these places, was not always um, looked well upon. Um, They would just mob us because I was there, not because they wanted to come to that. Um, So at uh, some of the Western staff, some of our uh, national staff would go out and we would go to Jamuna Bazar, which you saw in the video, uh, which is where a lot of our um, addicts congregate and where a lot of the destitute congregate. Um, there's community there, but also, again, you saw in the video, destitution, um, drug addiction, et cetera. So we'd ask patients if they wanted to come. If they looked sick, we'd ask them what their problem was. Maybe they have been coughing and coughing up blood. Maybe they've had diarrhea for two months, something like this. Um, so we asked them if they wanted to come, because if they didn't want to come and give up their addiction, then we couldn't really work with that. We didn't, uh, The ashram was a place that was free of drug and alcohol. And so we just said, you know, you can't come if you're not willing to give these things up. But we can try to take you to the hospital where you can do something else to help intervene for you medically. Um, this is Achila. We'll kind of follow his story a little bit. We went to pick him up, um, and before I got, right when I stepped out of the ambulance, I could just smell him. It was horrible. Um, He wasn't able to walk, so we had to pick him up and get him into the ambulance. Um, His pants were completely soiled, um, just very unkempt. Um, I'm I'm from San Francisco, and we have a really large homeless population, so I thought, oh, living in India would be fine. Like I'll totally get used to that. It, this is nothing compared to that. Um, and I don't know if you can see, you can't see it too well, but on one of Atilal's feet, there's, um, it's not a shoe or a sock. It's a, it's a bandage from uh, a dressing, and it was kind of caked on there, almost like a cast. I'm a wound care nurse, so I was like, oh, yeah, I can't wait to get under there and see what's in there, um, which we will do later. So anyway, we would pick up patients, uh, take them back with us, um, and then we would do um, a quick assessment on them. We'd do an intake. Where are you from? What language do you speak? Um, what religion are you? Um, will you agree to stay here for your duration of treatment? If you have TB, that means at least six months. Um, if you have a wound, we want you to stay for the entire duration of your, you know, until your wound is healed. Um, do you have an infection and we need to give you antibiotics? You got to stay with us. You have HIV. We're going to hook you up on um, ART meds, but you need to stay with us. Um, so it was one of those things. Um, they could either sign their name. A lot of these guys don't have education. They can't even write their name. So we would just have them uh, use a fingerprint as a signature. And then we would get them bathed. Um, There's two really important things about getting our patients bathed. One, physical cleanliness. Uh, These guys have been living on the street. I told you about Achila and how dirty he was. But um, a lot of these guys come in with lice, scabies, all that kind of stuff that comes along with homelessness and um, poverty. But the the other really important thing is physical touch. We weren't afraid to touch them. Um, These guys aren't are considered either untouchable or unclean, and no one will even give them the time of day. So the fact that we would actually touch them was um, the first step in showing them Jesus. It's pretty incredible. I also really love this picture because the man man cleaning used to be a patient. He's now He had TB in his spine. Um, I don't know about you. I didn't know TB could be anywhere but the lungs. And then I go to India, and they're like, oh, he has abdominal TB. I was like, Come again, like what I had no clue. We saw TB everywhere, everywhere, um, bones, spine, brain, abdomen um, very aggressive disease. Um, but Shireen um, was able to overcome his illness, he became a Christian, and now he works for the ashram and he does a lot of the microfinance and the, um, the transitional progress of a lot of our patients. So it's really cool to see him. Even though he has this office job, he still likes to go in and help clean our patients when they first come. Then we make sure they get fed. A lot of our guys don't eat, or they are eating stuff that isn't good for them, like jalebi or sweets. So we give them and rice. Okay, this is good, stable food. It's high in protein. We're good to go. Um, eating mounds of stuff. Unless they were TB patients when it was really hard, we had to kind of force them to eat, get them... You know, if they wanted an orange, I would go out and get them an orange. I was like, we just got to get nutrition in you. Um, A lot of times we'd have to give them IV fluid as well because they were so dehydrated or just malnourished. Um, Depending on what the patient came in with, um, we would either wait to have them be seen by our ashram doctor who would come twice a week, or um, we would take them to emergency if they needed to go to the emergency. The most convenient and Competent nursing, uh, excuse me, competent ER was a 45-minute drive. So we, uh, we definitely had to weigh, like, is this patient even going to make it, or can they wait, et cetera. Um, if they weren't super critical, we could also just take them to a normal doctor's appointment, which we did every day. We would have patients going to different doctor's appointments in New Delhi. Prayer meetings are a huge part of the ashram. Um, they're mandatory every morning at 9am. All staff and patients gather and we have a time of singing and prayer. Patients can um, ask for prayer and what they're prayed for. Um, at the ashram, we don't say you have to be a Christian to come and have care. We accept anyone who would come. Um, but Jesus is definitely proclaimed and Jesus is definitely preached about. I love this picture because I know not everyone in this picture is a believer yet they're still praying to Jesus. And so... At first, I kind of struggled with that, like, why would they pray to Jesus? They don't know him. Like, you're, I know you were praying to the son earlier today. But later, I was like, oh, God broke my heart of that. And he said, you know, at least they're praying to me. <laughs> so our, my prayers became, Lord, let the prayers that they pray to you be answered. Um, and show them that you are the living God. Um, so I love this picture. Uh, the guys also participate in life groups. So they get together. And they're able to talk about what they've been through in life. Initially, they don't usually open up. They don't want to share. There's a lot of shame. Um, but over time, the guys really start to open up and share what's going up, what happened in their life. Um, what led them to being a drug addict or what led them to being a destitute. Not all of our patients grew up in destitution. Some of them fell from very high standings. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But this is a huge part of what we do to help with the emotional, spiritual, and social transformation of our patients. Yeah, and then once patients maybe have been discharged, they're able to go back into the community, but they're not quite ready to make that step to do it on their own. We just opened up a transition home um, where guys who have been, um, all of these guys have jobs, what maybe through the ashram or just on their own, um, but they're, they're not quite ready to live on their own yet. Um, they still need community support. They still need, um, yeah, community support mostly. Um, they live together in a house um, very close to the ashram within walking distance, and they support each other. They cook for each other. They take turns doing chores. Um, they, a small part of their salary goes to, to rent, so that way they can understand what it is to get back on their feet again and to live a stable life. This has been a huge thing. that the, um, one of, um, Actually, a lot of what this presentation is based on is from this research called Holistic Rehabilitation, Redeeming the Destitute to Dignity. Um, and that's what this is, one of the research findings is that we needed this transition home to really get the patients stable and to have them thrive in the community at large once they've been discharged. All right, that's a lot of talking. Um, let's, I love that you guys are medical professionals because then I can show you gross, nasty pictures of wounds. I'm so excited. So this is Achila. We talked about him. And wound care was one of the things I did mostly. I loved it. I got to see the patients every day. We got to have a conversation, even though my hindi was horrible. We still, like, managed to have some sort of communication. This is Achilal's wound after he got cleaned up. Um, Tissues totally macerated, sloth all over the wound bed. I think I spent, like, 45 minutes initially on this wound, cleaning it up and loving every minute of it, right? Um, After some time... Oh, in India, I was really shocked to find out that our main product for wound healing is betadine and in my wound care class the two products that we never use are betadine and hydrogen peroxide and uh, those were my two like go-to's when I was in India It's like okay what to do this is (laughs) new life anyway but betadine does heal wounds um this is what I got a few weeks later it's um it's really hard to see huh it's a really nice granulation tissue in the wound bed the edges have become less macerated and we're starting to come back together um And then a few few weeks later, I got this. I don't have an end product. I wasn't there when Achilal had his wound healed and was discharged from us. But it did heal, and it was really cool to see and really exciting. Because of Achilal's age, and actually he had some um, signs of dementia, he wasn't really able to contribute to the community, and we weren't really able to meet his needs. So there's an elder home that's not too far from our ashram, and so we transferred him to there. Um, We're not affiliated, but we have a close working relationship. So that's Achelel's story. Um, Pretty cool. Um, But let's get into the meat of it. I really, I have the honor of sharing stories with you about some of the men that I interacted with when I was there. And how God has really transformed their lives. Um, These guys are my friends. These guys are my family. And so to come to you with their stories is such a privilege. Um, I wish they could be here to do that. Um, But I can't fly four guys over here. Anyway, so we came up with this really stupid hashtag as a joke, um, because that's what you do when you're in India and you don't have um, TV to watch all the time, you do stupid things, like come up with stupid hashtags. So we hashtag SEWA stories so we could be able to share with our friends and family about the people we were meeting and our experiences. But it actually became something really significant to us. So um, that's how the title of the seminar actually came about. Um, the first story I wanted to share with you is VJ. Uh, VJ came from a very poor home. He came to us because he had TB. Um, he wasn't able to care for himself. None of his family could take him to the hospital. In Indian hospitals, you have to have an attendant with you. You can't just show up. The nurses don't care for you. and the, you know They don't take care of your daily needs. You need someone there with you to help do all of those things. Maybe they, maybe they draw blood. Well, the, there's no like tube system. You can't just tube it to, uh, to the lab. Someone has to take it to the lab. And if you're there and you can barely walk because you're so weak, who's going to take it to the lab for you? So you have to have someone in there with you. Um, Vijay didn't have anyone in his family who was able to do that. So he came to us for his TB treatment, um, but his TB was a little bit complicated. He actually had an abscess in his lung, so he wasn't able to breathe properly. They started with a chest tube, um, but even then he wasn't able to breathe properly. So they ended up putting this window in his lung. So this is his chest wall right here. Um, And uh, he will have this the rest of his life. Um, this helps him to breathe properly. But initially, this wound was really purulent. It was really gross. Um, so we were cleaning it twice a day. We used things like normal saline, USAL, which is kind of like a Dakin solution, a bleach solution. Um, and we would we'd have him lie on his side. We'd pour in the fluid, and he would shake his body up and down. And then he would roll over and empty it out. And we'd do that two or three times. And then we would clean the outside <laughs> with betadine and then put a pad over it and by you know eight hours twelve hours later the pad was pretty saturated with stuff so we'd have to do it all over again. Um, his wound his wound bed always looked pretty gross, honestly. We got it looking a little bit pinker, but it it pretty much always had some sort of infection in there. He was on antibiotics a lot. Um, but without this he wouldn't be able to breathe <laughs> properly. So this is actually really important to him. Despite all of this and all the stuff that he was going through and the fact that he'd have to have this hole in his chest the rest of his life, um, Vijay was one of the most joyful people I ever met. He was eager to help people and other patients. Um, He would pray for them. He would, you can see him, he he is handicapped himself. I believe it was from polio. Forgive me for not knowing that fully. Um, But he was so eager to help. And he was so, so kind to me when I first showed up. I was like, I don't speak Hindi. How am I supposed to communicate? Um, And he was always, you know, asking me if he could help me and trying to guide me along, like, take your plate here and like handing stuff to me and just really, really sweet guy. Um, In our prayer meetings at night, he would be one of the first people to be praying for other people. And he made sure to go to the wards and pray for others and um, just truly a transformed life. Vijay finished his TB treatment. He stayed a few months longer just to make sure that his wound was um, healing a little bit better than it was uh, initially. But Vijay was able to go back with his family, and it was such, it was such a bittersweet day because Vijay had become such a part of our community, but oh, what a joy to see him go back to his family and to be able to share Jesus with his family and his community. Vijay uh, did come back to the ashram a few times just to help. Um, he just wanted to help out, and um, he would, if we were having a special presentation, he had heard about it, and he would come and he would dance and sing, and it was so fun to watch. Um, my last couple of months, I didn't hear much from VJ or about VJ. I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's the reality. Sometimes we don't hear from our patients. We don't know what happens to them. But we continue to pray for them, and we continue to ask God to protect them and to, like, to continue to guide them. Um, so that's our say-what story for <laughs> Vijay. Um, next we have Narenda. Narenda is from a wealthy Sikh family, and he was kind of a troublemaker when he was in... Uh, when he was growing up. And he said that once he wrote a love letter to a girl because he wanted to have a love marriage, his family flipped. They were getting ready to kick him out of the house. They're like, what are you doing? How could you do this? His grandfather pulled him inside and said, why would you throw your life away on a love marriage? Look at all this inheritance money I can give you. If you renounce this, this love marriage, we'll, we'll arrange a marriage for you, and you'll have money forever. We'll take care of you. You won't even have to work. Well, Miranda said, Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. So he broke up with this girl. His family arranged a marriage for him. He had two kids. And he kept having all this money. But he didn't have to do anything. So he started using drugs and alcohol. Mostly drugs and advanced IV drugs. Um, he became so addicted and so in love with his drugs that he even let his wife divorce him because she was like, I can't do this anymore. Narenda was using drugs and alcohol and ended up in Jamuna Bazaar. And um, he was completely cut off from his family because of his addictions. Kind of ironic, right? Um, he was injecting uh, drugs in his leg and he ended up with a wound infection. And he couldn't afford to go to the hospital. And at the time, the ashram had a, an emergency clinic close to Jamuna Bazaar. And so he went there to receive care. They transferred him over to the ashram. And so he was kind of there. He was kind of getting his life cleaned up, wound healed. He's like, I am out of here. I want my drugs. So he went back out to the streets, started using again. Infection came back, another wound, another, another location on his leg. And he, um, he ended up staying at the ashram for about a year, even though his wound had healed. He was excited to get his life changed. But one night, there was a big fight in one of the wards. And Narenda, who was like, I'm trying to clean up my life, He wanted to stay out of it, but he's like, I have to intervene. I have to get in there and help. So he breaks up the fight. Staff members come, and he gets blamed for the fight. So they kick him out, and he goes back to the street. Where else can he go? And he tried really hard to keep his life clean. In fact, he says, so I have a quote from him. He says, I kept trying to help myself become a better person. And so he stayed away from his old friends. He stayed away from drugs. But after a few months, he just got really depressed and really, really lonely. So he started using again. Um, the ashram people were, the ashram staff were at the Jyotirmaya frequently, and finally came to him one day and said, "You know, we know that you were in the right. We shouldn't have kicked you out. We're really, really sorry about this." Um, but at the time, Miranda was so sick; um, he couldn't even get up and walk. So the ashram staff took him back to the ashram. Um, I talked with the, the nurse who was uh, around during those times and she said they were really convinced he was going to die. That this third admission, he was going to die. No way. He was only 40 kilos. No way. And you can see here he's pretty emaciated. Um, yeah. But a miracle happened, of course, because God is amazing. And this is Narenda today. Um, Narenda has had his life completely transformed by Jesus. Um, he uh, Yeah, it makes me want to cry. He's amazing. Um, After his his treatment finished and after his wound healed, he um, started participating more in life groups and started getting more involved in staff. And actually, he learned um, a lot of the jobs in the clinic. In fact, he's one of our main medication dispensary people. (laughs) Um, He gets up every morning at 5 a.m., even on his day off, to distribute TB medication. Narenda knows everything that's going on at the ashram. If I had an issue, if, if I didn't know what was going on with a TB patient, like when was the last time they ate, whatever, he knew the answer. Um, if I got a call at 3 in the morning because there was an emergency, Narenda was calling me because he was the one who knew what was going on. Um, it's pretty incredible, pretty incredible transformed life. He says that he, he loves his job because he feels like he has purpose again, and he can help people. Um, and I have to share about his dog. This is Puppy. His dog's name is Puppy, right? Okay, She's two and a half years old, and um, she was just a street dog, and he took her in, cared for her, and she's our therapy dog, in a sense. Um, yes, it's Narenda's dog, but all of the patients of Ashram really love Puppy, unless they have like, a fear of dogs or whatever, but Puppy is definitely a, a very important part of our Ashram. So that's the story of Narenda. It's pretty incredible, right? It's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, he has never reconnected with his family. Um, this is something we've tried to, um, not me personally, but a lot of the staff members have talked with him about, is encouraging him to get back to meet his family again. Um, it's been over, oh gosh, I don't even know how long now. Probably, f- how old is he? It's probably been about 30 years since he's seen his family. He was addicted to drugs and alcohol for 24 years. Um, so it's pretty, pretty incredible, but... We still pray. I still pray for this. And I told him when I left, I said, you need, to, you need to go see your family and make amends. And he was like, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, I have one more story to share with you. And this is um, one of my favorites. This is Irfan. Um, my friends picked him up in Yamuna Bazaar. They brought him back to the ashram. He couldn't walk. We got him cleaned up. Um, and uh, man, Irfan. He told us he was 18 years old. And I don't think, I'm really bummed, I don't know if you can see this picture so well, but if you look at his face and you know this kid is not 18. Um, After a few months when he started to trust us, we found out he was 13. Um, His initial tests showed that he was HIV positive, Hep C positive, and his hemoglobin was under three. So he transfused two units. We did some initial care for him. He also had a severe lung infection. It wasn't um, TB, so he was on antibiotics for a while. Um, that's how we kept him. We kept saying, oh, you have to finish your antibiotics. Uh, you can't go, you have to finish your antibiotics. But, he really became kind of a special person at the ashram. We don't have kids so often at the ashram at the specifically. So, um, everyone kind of took him under their wing and um, he would always be trying to get us to bring him back momos or chow mein or something. We'd be like, oh, you're fun. You have dal. It's so good. And I was like, I'm eating the dal. You eat the dal. Come on. But, you know, every once in a while I would, you know, slip him some chips or whatever. Um, so initially he really did not want to be at the ashram. He made some bad friends. And through those bad friends we found out that he was probably, while well, he was in Bazaar, he was probably uh, selling his body to make money to get drugs at 13. Yeah, really rough. Um, yeah, that was a rough day. Um, but eventually, um, Irfan decided that he didn't want to leave the ashram and that he he really started to light up. I would I would walk downstairs in the morning for breakfast, and I'd hear this giggle behind me, Dee <laughs> Dee, Namaste. And it was so cute, and he would just be there and give him a high five, you know, just remind him how much we loved him and just was there for him and just played with him. Like I did the, this is always our little game, high five. Down low, to the side, too slow. He had no idea what I was saying. And, but I don't care, because it was the best. And he would always talk to me in Hindi, and I would just look at him and say, I had no idea what you're saying. Like, my Hindi is not that good. But he would just laugh and give me a high five and walk away. I was like, awesome. I hope you were saying something good. Um, anyway, this is Irfan now. Irfan's been at the ashram for about eight months. Oh, I lie, I'm sorry, seven months. Um, you can just see that he has life back in his face. He says that he wants to stay at the ashram, he wants to go to school, and he wants to serve people like he's been served. Um, I don't know where Irfan is with the Lord, um, but I would say that he he's definitely heard the gospel, and he definitely prays to Jesus. Um, so I think that's a pretty good start. And um, So I would invite you to pray with me for Irfan, if you remember, um, that God would continue to really do a holistic transformation in his heart and turn him from darkness to light. Um Oh, I lied to you. I have one more story. I'll be kind of quick on this one. This is Amar Chand. I don't have an earlier picture of him. Um, but Amar Chand grew up in destitution. He never had a home. His mom died when he was a child. And he, he had to start working when he was 10 years old. And in his job, he was introduced to drugs and alcohol. So he started using drugs. He's like, oh, I started with chewing tobacco, but it wasn't long before I started using cocaine like oh okay then that's quite a transition so um, he started using that and he could never hold a job because of his drug addiction he was a cycle rickshaw voila he was um, a garbage collector he did a bunch of different stuff could never hold a job um, he ended up with tb and because of his destitute state he ended up at the ashram and he heard about jesus and he kind of was like oh this is interesting But after his treatment, he's like, I am so bored. Six months of being in this place, get me out. So he left, started using drugs and alcohol again, specifically drugs, Um, but he ended up needing some surgeries. He's not really sure why, but he had to have some surgery. Um, The surgeries left him paralyzed. Um, The hospitals called us and we went to pick him up. Um, Amrachand has been in the ashram ever since. Um, He's one of our long-term community members. But the really great thing about Amar Chand is that his life has been transformed by Jesus. Um, One of the first questions he asked me when I was doing one of his loans, he said, are you a Christ follower? I said, yes, yes I am. And this huge smile went on his face and he just, um, he started talking to me in Hindi after that and I was like, again, I don't don't know what you're saying, I'm really sorry. Um, But he was so excited to find other believers and he just wanted to, Always shared Jesus. When we had new patients come, Amr Chand was one of the first people to go talk with them and to pray for them and ask them how he can be praying for them. Um, in our, he is the one who runs our evening prayer meetings, um, and he's a little bit tone deaf, but his the joy that comes out when he sings is something else. It is truly beautiful. I was like, that man is worshiping the Lord with his whole heart. What a joyful noise. Um, so that's why I love this picture. Cause I know that he's singing with such conviction and such passion. Um, the really great, the really, really cool thing is that when he prays for patients, um, his prayers are often answered. And, um, he, so a lot of times we go to Chand when we need something and say, Armachand, not that he's like a genie, but, um, <laughs> it's really cool to see that God is answering this man's prayers. Um, A man who totally was not following the Lord. And now he is saying, I love Jesus, and I want everyone to know about him. He's a very, very bold evangelist. Um, Armitan is one of our uh, community um, members. He's there lifelong, most likely. But he runs a business, and he has his own little business, and that's called Ashram Beads. So these guys make beads. uh, Make beads, I'm sorry. They make necklaces, earrings, jewelry, etc., And they sell it at a German Christmas market at the embassy in Delhi. Um, It's pretty cool. The guys heard I was coming here, Arma Chand and a few of the others, and they were like, Didi, you have to take some jewelry with you and give it to gifts for people who come to your class. It would be so great. So over here on the side, I have a bunch of jewelry that the guys have made. This is their gift to you. And um, what they ask is that you would just pray for them and that you would pray that um, God would continue to use them mightily. Yeah, kind of touches your heart, right? Um, so um, inside each one is a card. It has the story of Amar Chan, but also on the back, of Vinod, one of our other patients who is wheelchair-bound. Um, t- take as many as you want. Um, give them as gifts. Tell people about um, Chan and these men who are being radically transformed by the gospel. Um, this is it for our stories. We're going to talk a little bit more really quickly about some other things. But if you want to hear more stories of the ashram, there's a few books over here that um, was done by our founder um, and the UN so um, it's very interesting. The t- stories are very touching. Um, so I would encourage you, even just to flip through it, I would love to have you take a look. Um, so holistic healing. We look at these guys' lives, and there's some common themes. We're going to break these down really quickly. The first one is breaking. They all come to a breaking point. They're, they're bottom. You know, Those of us familiar with 12-step programs, you have to come to this point where you are at a breaking point. A lot of them are alone. Almost all of them are alone, and they're completely disconnected from their family, which in a communal context like India, that's a really big deal. Um, but they also have this bondage, this lack of education, extreme destitution, and oftentimes addiction. But then they come to the ashram, and they get this brief, they're able to take a deep breath. The ashram really is an oasis. Um, the first time I walked onto the property, I just felt this peace. And every time after that, there was peace. Yes, it was my home, but at the same time... You could really feel the presence of God in this place. Um, There was compassion and care, and men could have rest. A lot of times patients would come to the ashram, and they'd be so sick, but they had fought and struggled so long to get there that they would die within 24 hours, because their bodies were finally able to rest, and they could put their guard down, and they didn't have to fight any longer. Um, It was really hard, but it's also kind of beautiful in a sense as well. Um, Another theme we see is belonging. After time being at the ashram, they finally have a sense of belonging. They have responsibility. They have ownership, like Narendra talked about. I have purpose in my life again. And then we have believing. Um, there's constant invitations at the ashram to believe. Um, we have a Saturday big prayer meeting uh, service with all of the affiliates of the Delhi House Society. And the gospel is always shared, and there's always an invitation to believe on Jesus. Um, and there are so many stories, countless, countless stories of the ashram of people encountering, encountering a living God, which, in a, again, in a Hindu context is very real, um, where you're praying to a statue, but then you get to see that God is real, and God is living, and he is working. It's pretty beautiful. And finally, becoming was our last theme. And one of our patients said, I was a drug addict. Now I'm a child of God. Um, he's truly become... Um, something more than what uh, what he ever thought he could be. So these are the things that we see. This is almost a pattern that we watch in Holistic Healing. Um, but but how do we achieve Holistic Healing, right? That's kind of what we're here to talk about. Um, the reality is that we don't do it. Christ does it. But we do engage, and we do have a, a role to play. And here's a couple of things we do do. We, we do do. Um, we pray. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm five years old. Okay. We pray. We we live as examples of Jesus to those around us. We show love, compassion, care, and discipline. And I see this really displayed in Romans 12. So I'm going to read you a few verses from there. Um, Love must be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence. Be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Be in agreement with one another, do not be proud, instead associate with the humble, do not be wise in your own estimation do not repay anyone evil for evil try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes if possible on your part live at peace with everyone again that was Romans 9 through 18 um, we've all heard these verses before but as we look at what holistic healing looks like in holistic transformation um, and as we look at what our part is in that whether it's overseas or even here we um, I hope that these can be you can see these verses anew in, in that light. Um, there was a lot of talk of hope, yes, but in the beginning it was very hopeless. I don't know. I always feel that when I start this presentation. I'm like, "Oh, so hopeless and blah. But I love this picture because we're end here because you just see the joy in these kind of spaces. You see people who have been transformed, people who have purpose again, and people who say, um, "I once was a drug addict, but now I am a child of God." And that's pretty incredible. Um, So thank you. Are there any questions or comments?
1: Yes. Do they work the 12-step program
0: now? The question was, do they work the 12-step program? No. Um, We have models off the 12-step program, but there's no official working of the steps. Yes. How do we fund it? It is an NGO. Um, There's a lot of funding from Europe. Our founder is Swiss. And so there's a lot of funds from Switzerland. A lot of, um, I was the only American there, actually. Um, Most of my teammates were German, hence the German Christmas market where they sell the beads. Um, So a lot of funding comes from Germany. There's also a, uh, two of the guys who are on the board of directors, they are both entrepreneurs and businessmen. And so they've started this business called Head Rush Adventures, and they send people on motorcycle tours in the Himalayas. And all the proceeds from that go to um, the Ashram. So there's lots of things like that to help fund. Um, really, and then for me, like I wasn't paid; I was just a volunteer. Um, yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. You. Yeah. How many, people are
0: at the clinic? How many people are at the clinic? Great question. We have capacity for up to 100, but we usually like to keep our census at about 75. It's more manageable for our staff, especially when we have a lot of patients admitted in the hospital, because we supply the attendant. And so it's a big burden on our task, if, or on our staff, if we have 10 people admitted in the hospital. That's pretty much our entire attendant staff.
1: Yes. You got a big percent of
0: death in this, though. Yeah, I, lost, I So I was there for 10 months, and I, in the first two months, I lost count of how many people had died. Um, and they said that that was very unusual, um, but it was still very. I think my first two days there, so my, on my second day, someone died, just blood out. You know, What's happening? I don't even know. What did I sign up for? Um, But the the tragic part to me is I can count on one hand how many people died who were followers of Jesus. Um, So again, a lot of patients would come in. They'd die within 24 hours or a week. Um, Yeah. Yes? Yes? Thankfully, we haven't had any issues with this yet. The question was: are we, did everyone hear the question? Okay, great. Um, The the question was about: um, are we experiencing difficulties with the government? Um, Because the new administration has closed down so many NGOs, um, especially faith-based NGOs. We haven't experienced threats of being closed down, but a lot of, uh, I know two people who work for Delhi House who were um, denied visas. Um, So employment visas are getting more difficult for us to find. I think that's our biggest resistance. Yes. Tell us the men of the organization again that you work with. Yeah. So the, the big umbrella is called Delhi House Society. You can look at delhihouse.org. Um, and then I worked under a portion of it called Sayyid Ashram. Yes. Yes. So great question. Why, why are all of our patients men? Um, we used to have both men and female, male and female patients initially when the ashram started. But in the last six years or so, it's transitioned to men only. And that's because there's a lot of sticky cultural things when you have men cleaning up females. And there wasn't enough female staff to take care of the female patients. Um, even for me, like, I wasn't allowed to wash the, the male patients. Even though I'm like, I'm a, I'm a nurse, I do this all the time. I work at a VA hospital here in the States, too. So this is, like, totally my, well, not totally, a lot of my patients in San Francisco reflect a lot of these things. And so I was like, this is, this is fine, let me in there. They're like, Didi, Dee, no you must go sit down. I said, okay.
1: (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's why
0: we've transitioned to only men. There is a Mother Teresa home not far from us. um, So we would take, if we found female patients, that's where we would take them. Yeah. Yes? Yes? Question was, um, how do we handle the amount of people we see on the streets and do we bring them in? How do we triage that kind of thing? Is that yeah, um, most of the time we ask patients if they want to come. If we see someone on the street who looks like they need help, we'll ask them if they want to come. And if they say no, we're not going to force them, we can't, we're not going to kidnap them off the street. Um, There's also several other NGOs doing similar things. So, our capacity at the ashram used to be a lot more. My friends were telling me that. They used to have 150 patients, so people would be sleeping in our meeting circle. We would have mats set up in the, in the wards. Um, but because there's been several NGOs that have opened recently who do a lot of what we do, they're just not, faith, they're not Christian organizations, um, but they're, they're doing a lot of what we do. So they'll come and take patients and do that kind of thing. So there, there's a huge need, but there's also no desire. There's no desire to change. There's no desire to have um, healing. And so that's kind of a rough situation as well. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, and next to you. That is a great question. So, yeah, I was only there for 10 months. Um, I think I will always have connections to the ashram. Um, I'm not sure what it looks like long-term to go back because it was a volunteer situation. Um, It's not expensive to live in India. Um, But, yeah, I... I don't know where God is taking me. I don't know. I'm kind of in this like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life kind of thing. So I would love to go back to India. I see myself in India long term at some point. And I would love to work with the ashram. Um, I just don't know what my role would be um, when I go back. I don't know if they're going to need someone who was doing what I was doing. So I'll have to reassess that once the time comes. Yeah.
1: Yes. I think many of these men get, re- um, get employed after they
0: a lot of them do, um, and that's part of what... I showed you that picture of Shireen in the beginning who had the spinal TB, who was cleaning the patient. That's one of his main jobs, is to find jobs for people you know, when they're discharged. A lot of patients were there just just for TB treatment, so they left their job and they're able to go back to it. Um, it's, it's just a case-by-case situation. The problem is not so much finding them a job, the problem is getting them to keep the job and stay off the drugs and alcohol. That's our problem. Um, I shared with you a lot of success stories not, not every patient is a success story. So that, that's the biggest problem, I would say. In the back. Right, so the question is what kind of drugs do we see? Um, I'm not fully sure because even Amran Chan said he used cocaine. I was like, how in the world are you getting coke? You know, I just thought that was a really hard drug to get. Maybe I'm in my own little suburban bubble. But I thought that was difficult to get. So cocaine is definitely something we see. Um, Marijuana. um, A lot of the, the government gives out drug substitutes or different NGOs, and it's like 50 rupees a pill, and it's sort of less than a dollar for a pill. And the guys, instead of taking it, will crush it up, mix it with whatever they have, and inject it. So they get a high from this, apparently. So, I know that's not a great answer, but that's kind of what I see, what I've heard. Yeah, I think I saw a couple other questions. No? Yeah?
1: Uh, are there like possibilities of growing such organizations? Like, how would you like? Would there be second, third, or something like
0: this? Yeah, I think the question is would the organization grow? Do you mean in Delhi itself or in other places? I think funding is a big deal. I think if there was more funding I think that Ashram would definitely grow um, we used to have this rescue center located in New Delhi itself so we were in the state of Delhi but at the very north um, and New Delhi is a little bit further south um, so we we used to have a a building there where we would see people emergently, we would do daily dressing changes there so patients didn't have to come to the ashram for something so simple as a dressing change and we could still build relationships and um, kind of like what we heard about last night in the session about building these long-term relationships with patients and uh, sharing the gospel in that context Um, but it was too expensive and we couldn't afford to staff it we couldn't afford the the space um, so we had to close that down so the ashram became the primary health care center yeah, I think if funding was a thing, we would definitely expand. Or if funding wasn't an issue, we would definitely expand. Yeah. Yes? Um,
1: when you went, did you have to use your own funds to live
0: off of while you were there? Yeah, so the question was, did I use my own funds? Yes. I was a volunteer. Um, I had room and food free. Um, and then if I... Well, no, I just paid for this too. But, like, internet is, was a big cost for me, which I know sounds really dumb, but... When you see what we saw every day, my teammates and I would be like, can we just sit and watch an episode of, Friends? I don't know, a, a TV show where we could just like totally not pay attention? But it was good for us. <laughs> so we spent 20 minutes doing stuff like that, or um, even just being able to FaceTime. So th- th- that was a big expense. But, I mean, everything in India is fairly inexpensive, so you didn't, I didn't need a ton of money to be there.
1: I think I saw another question back here somewhere. Yeah, do they have a lot of short-term missions?
0: Are there a lot of short-term missions that come through? Yes and no. Um, I, w- I wouldn't say a lot, necessarily. Um, there are some connections um, where short-term teams have come. Actually, from my university, uh, California Baptist University, they'll bring us a team of students every once in a while, But and they're about three weeks. Typically, um, the standard, though, for volunteers, for someone like me, is six-month minimum. Um, it takes a really long time to get used to the like, hospital system and for the patients to open up and trust you, and honestly, language is a big deal. I think about four or five months in is when I could really again, my Hindi is not so great, but I could at least communicate more efficiently with my patients and For those of you in healthcare it's it was really hard for me to assess what was going on with my patient because i couldn 't speak the language and yes there 's interpreters and everything, but i don 't know there, there could be some words that are missed in translation or something like this, so um, six months is usually what we saved a minimum yes. Yeah, oh, I wish I had a picture for you. Um, so when, I don't know if you recall, um, when you initially walk in and we, I showed you the picture of doing the health assessment, that's right outside the clinic. And the clinic is a two-story building on the bottom. Yeah, in fact, this is the clinic. Thank you, Dr. Rebecca. Um, right here is the clinic. There are 10 hospital beds in there with two emergency beds, which we do have monitors that work sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then the clinic where we do wound care and have other procedures done in there. Um, On top is staff housing, so that's where I lived, Um, and all the single staff live up there. So, like, Narenda lives there, Rajpal, a couple other guys, and then my Western, my German buddies were there, too. Um, And then, if you walk this way, onto the ashram, there's two, uh, or four hospital wards. There's one that is, um, or there's two that are together, and that's Shalom and Agape, and they're for patients who came for non-TB reasons. Um, a lot of our long-term residents will also live there. To, they're kind of like ward parents, so they, kind of make, they make sure all the tours are getting done, et cetera. And then in the other side, we have the TB. We have TB1, TB2. TB1 is for active TB patients, and TB2 is for um, patients who are now sputum positive, or have been on at least two months of TB treatment. Um, and then there's a kitchen next to that. And then it's a square oh man, I really wish I had a picture for you guys um, And then we have one other ward that used to be the TV ward that's across from the clinic. Um, I'm sorry, in between, um, well, let me stay there, um, across from the clinic, and that's where um, a lot more of our long-term patients live. We have a couple guys with mental illnesses or mental delays. They stay there. They have a buddy that they work with. Um, and then in between that that ward in the clinic is a circle, which is our main meeting. We just say, oh, we're meeting at the circle. That's our main meeting point. So hopefully that gives you a little bit better picture of what it looks like. Maybe one more question? Yeah. The The question is, are we connected with the local church? Again, yes and no. We have a local pastor who will come every Thursday night and do a prayer meeting and a service with our patients. Um, There was a lot of issue a few years back about patients going to the local church. Um, They started trying to form relationships with women, and it just wasn't a good situation, and it wasn't safe for some of our... um, Because, yeah, it wasn't safe for the community in in some ways. Um, So we try to bring church to them. But when they... A lot of our staff members will go to church, and uh, once patients have become... Have, like, kind of graduated from the program, if you will, they'll encourage them to go to church, um, but also have the accountability of being with someone else and things like that. Um, But this local church definitely... um, uh, Pastor, Pastor Sam, he's really good about coming and praying with our patients. If we call him and say, We have a patient who really needs to hear the gospel, will you come? He'll come straight away. It's really great. Wow, guys. Thank you so much for coming. Um, thank you for hearing these stories. Make sure you grab some beads on the way out. Um, have a great day. Thank you.